Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have a really special treat that we've got Jennifer Madsen from Andrew Brown Literary Agency with us. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is very exciting. We've spoken to a few literary agents before, but each time we get to speak to one, it's like, oh, we're finally going to learn all the secrets. We all have our own way of doing things too, so. Right. Well, I guess that's also good because that means if one doesn't work, there's always another one. True. Um, So just starting from the beginning, how on earth did you get into becoming a literary agent? Did you always know about this job that you were always going to do this? You fell into it? How did this all come about? It was really circuitous for me, but I would say the one constant has always been going back to when you start thinking about career seriously in your senior year of college. I knew that I wanted to get involved with children's books to at some level, but I, agenting was not on my radar at that time. I mean, I'm sure I knew that literary agents existed, but I was certainly more aware of being an editor. I mean, really wanted to be a children's book editor at that time. But, you know, it's hard to get those jobs. They're very sought after. And I decided to start by working just in a publisher. Like, it didn't really matter what kind of publisher. I figured that would be a good place to, you know, get your proverbial foot in the door. So my first job in in publishing ended up being as an assistant at a math educational textbook company, um, part of Houghton Mifflin. So it was pretty far from what I am doing now. But actually, it was really a good place to start because Houghton Mifflin is a legendary publisher of children's literature on their trade side. I happen to be on the really super duper boring textbook side, but I had access to the people who did work on those really wonderful picture books and novels for kids. Um, And while I was there, and this this totally dates me, but while I was there, The Giver by Lois Lowry won the Newbery. So of course, there was a whole hullabaloo about that. And that was very exciting. So that kind of like further lit the fire under me. And I ended up moving to New York, working at a children's bookstore for a while to make ends meet. And then through that, in New York, if you work at a children's bookstore, you're just going to end up rubbing shoulders with lots and lots of people who work in children's publishing because of all those authors events. So I ended up working in publicity at Penguin for children's books, got to do crazy things like chaperone John Sheska of Stinky Cheese Man Guy and uh, Paul Zielinski, who won the Caldecott while I was working there. So that was pretty cool. And, And then from there, I managed to get a job in editorial. So I worked as an editor for five years. I worked at Dutton Children's Books. And then I, for personal things, took me to Chicago, where I live now. So that's sort of when I had to kind of transition to something else. I loved working at a publisher. I loved editing. And a friend of mine, Susan Van Meter, who's actually a very prominent editor in her own right, over at Walker Books, part of Candlewick, mm-hmm. she at the time suggested that maybe I think about agenting because that's something that's pretty geographically flexible. So yeah, that was about, uh, God, it was like 10, 11 years ago now that I joined Edgar Brown Literary. So that is the lengthy story. Yeah. Well, how do you feel now about being an agent? Is it like, how did I never know about this? Or it's like, well, I needed to have gone through all those to have gotten here. That makes sense. (laughs) 
That's a great question. I do think that having worked in so many different aspects of the children's book world, for lack of a better term for it, has helped me ultimately. I particularly think working in a bookstore is hugely helpful, um, even though for me that was a while ago. I know that at least one of my colleagues, Jennifer Loughran, still works in a bookstore because mm. she finds it so crucial to keep tabs on the marketplace and know what's being published and know what people are actually buying. So that's one thing that was really helpful. And then, of course, working in the marketing department helps as as an agent because you're constantly sort of trying to figure out ways to make sure that your clients' books are getting their due attention. So having a little bit of the other side of the desk experience can be kind of helpful to smooth that process. And that's true of the editorial experience I have too. So yeah, I think it all kind of worked together. The other thing that I did that I didn't mention is I did book reviewing for Booklist Magazine. I think that was great. And I also think it's great for, for anybody to try their hand at because when you have to like distill a book down to 50, 75 words and a little capsule review, it kind of forces you to learn how to speak in that really concise way about books. And that is helpful when you're writing queries and pitches. So I still use those techniques all the time. That is probably the bane of almost every writer's just life is having to write a blurb or to condense yeah. the story. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do think that's probably one reason why, I mean, it's not probably the biggest reason why it's great to have an agent. There are so many good reasons, but I think having like a little bit of distance from a project yes. is really helpful in being able to see the big picture. Whereas when you're in the weeds of your own novel to try to turn it into a two paragraph plot summary is extremely difficult. Absolutely. You're like, how can I leave that out? I spend so much time on it. I can't leave that part out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. You're a novelist, right? Yes. So you know. Yeah. And I was like, oh, not the blurb again. Come on. <laughs> it's else even doing. worse, even worse when you have to come up with the log line. Yes. Like that one <laughs> sentence thing. We have to do that sometimes when we're pitching to Hollywood. And, yes. you know, they don't read. Like, you can't even give them a paragraph. They want the one sentence. So, yeah, that's a new a learning process that I've had to undergo. Yes. Still learning that one. Especially because when you have to, sometimes you have to distill into the log line. You're like, but once you take away all the details, it's the same story that somebody else told. But that's, the point is that it's told differently. That's why it's different. Or, you know, or, yeah. Yes. They don't want different. They just want this movie meets that movie, right? Yeah. So that's okay. Yeah, but all, comp titles are the next. Forget that. That's another, that's a, that's the other bane. <laughs> yeah. But just going back for a minute, that you said that you always kind of wanted to work it with children's books. Just because something that you always want to do, was there something that kind of instilled that or that attracted you to it or is just... I'm certainly not alone in this industry and having been a rather bookish child. That's pretty, <laughs> that's kind of a given, I suppose. But yeah, you know, I think that I was really burnt out at the end of college. And it turned out to be kind of a good thing because I had to really reflect upon what was actually inspiring to me and what actually was going to kind of fuel my passion. And I asked myself, just a really simple question. Like, what have you been happiest doing in your life? Yeah. And the immediate answer that rose to the top of my mind was curled up reading a novel when I was 10 or 12 or whatever. So 
based off of that kind of realization, I kind of looked into talking to some alums from my college who were working in children's book publishing. And I vividly remember going to the office. It was Little Brown, back when Little Brown was still in this gorgeous office in Boston. They're, of course, now in New York in huge corporate quarters. But back then it was very cozy. And I visited with a publicity person who I think is still there. And her office, it just enchanted me. She had all of these like huge plush characters from the little brown books. And I have to say, I was kind of drawn in by that. Like that sounds so totally superficial, (laughs) but it seemed so wonderful to be able to kind of retain that sense of play in your job. So that was, those were sort of like the two things that kind of kick-started me. And then I read The Golden Compass and it was all over. That's one of my one of my favorites. So are you covering, I know we can see this, but your highest interest, is that 10, 12-year-old self? Have you expanded that, that age of what you're looking for to acquire or to pick up or to agent? Oh, yeah. Most of us at Andrea Brown and we're 14 agents altogether. We pretty much cover age zero to young adult, which, you know, is putatively 18, although yeah. you know, they're about, they about. Very few of us, but but a few do adult books too. But most of us are really run the gamut of, of all children's lit audiences. So I would say that my list, I also do everything, but my list skews slightly, and I'm hoping to make it a little less slightly toward the younger end of the spectrum. I do a lot of picture book text authors of picture book texts. I represent illustrators. And then I think that the middle grade is the second kind of fullest part of my list and then a handful of YA. So yeah, so probably biggest fraction is is picture books right now. But I'd like to kind of move more toward more fiction. Honestly, I have, I find myself having more time now that my kids are older. Mm -hmm. And I think that novel editing, and I do quite a bit of editorial work with my clients, is very time consuming. So I feel like I can give those novels their due now. So I'm, I'm looking to expand in that direction. Middle grade and YA or specifically middle grade? or I think that my sensibility tends to be a little more in the, the middle grade spectrum. Yeah. I, I like YA to read, but I feel like my heart really lies in those soulful middle grade books. Yeah, because sometimes you see that you sort of mentioned now that you have your handful of YA. And sometimes when I see that, it's always like, okay, probably don't do YA then for the person who has the handful. It almost sounds like if one of your writers go in that direction or something just really hits you that you cannot say no to yeah. that's I mean what are the odds of that like you don't even know what the odds of that could be is that sort of what the unwritten rule is for that sort of thing like if you see like a handful of x projects it's probably not I think there's always going to be the agent would probably say if I see something I fall in love with yeah. I will certainly make a place for it in my stable but maybe it's just that his or her or their tastes are a little picky in that area and I guess that's probably where I am I wouldn't want people to stop sending me YA because of that though yeah that explains it it's basically just really make sure that you're I guess targeting the correct agent that it's really on par with what they want yeah well that's really important obviously yeah I would say for YA for me I used to say that I really liked fantasy and I do love fantasy. It was one of my great loves growing up. But I found that when I tell people that in the context of my persona as an agent, I'm getting submissions for things that are too much fantasy, like a little too much for me. So maybe just higher fantasy 
more like fantasy sagas that I really want. I like grounded fantasy. And I think honestly, that tends to be more the province of middle grade, Mm -hmm. which is probably what I mean when I say I love fantasy. For YA, I like contemporary realistic, but I really like things that are structurally kind of quirky and crafty. I don't want to say like things with a gimmick, but for instance, I loved um, Lockhart's uh, book, We Were Liars. It has this just like stunning ending that you sort of don't see coming at all. And not just looking for twist endings, but it's that kind of real tightly constructed cleverness that I like in YA. Ah, okay. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I was so mad at the ending. (laughs) Oh, there are people, it's it's a love it or hate it (laughs) situation with that book. Yeah. I didn't guess it. When I read it, I was like, really? (laughs) I loved it. I just like things that kind of blow my mind generally. Um, I just read her new book, actually, that just came out. Going, Going, it's called. And it's kind of plays with the idea of the multiverse. It's uh, romance, contemporary, realistic, romancy and yet it's kind of totally non-linear well not totally non-linear but it basically it's groundhog day in uh ya novel form and it's very interestingly structured so if if you're interested in a structure you should check it out that's cool yeah but also as soon as you say groundhog day i think there's no like thinking past that it's like groundhog day yes (laughs) like yes yeah yeah but it's it's kind of cleverer than that so i kind of regret having said that. Oh. that no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's calm titles, right? Because then all of a sudden you get this idea in your head. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's risky sometimes. Yeah. Well, then you said soulful middle grade. That sounds like it could be like almost any genre. It's more about character development would be the soulful part of it. Or what Or what do you mean by soulful middle grade? Yeah, that's a really good question. What do I mean by soulful middle grade? I think that it's middle grade where the character just really has a grip on your heart Mm. and you know by the end they get what they need whatever that might be and makes you know your heart swell up like I think that's what what soulful means to me I love a middle grade novel where by the end you're crying with happiness for the character because they've gotten what they need that's sort of like saying like middle grade with heart or not necessarily the same sort of description i think think it's sort of the same i mean everyone has their little back pocket phrases for those things you might hear it called heartfelt yeah with heart soulful yeah because that's why sometimes you see descriptions for things and you're like i know what these words mean together but how what does she mean when she's using that what is her definition when they're together and then you mentioned that when you do some editing with, with some of your clients, so will you call yourself an editorial agent? Speaking of, you know, how we define things, what does that mean when you're saying I'm, a, I'm an editorial agent? Yeah, no, I, I definitely am. I mean, I think I come by it honestly because of my background as an editor. I think most, if not all, of the agents at our agency would term themselves editorial agents. And it really just means what you would anticipate it means we really do work directly with clients on their projects pre-submission to sharpen them to make sure they're really submission ready it's a truism that editor's time is at it's very very uh low (laughs) so uh, they don't have as much time to dig in editorially and they certainly do i mean they're still doing that work but they have a lot of other demands on their time because of all the in-house bureaucracy that they need to deal with so you know they're not gonna be as quick to take on something that has a lot of promise but needs a lot of development so we try to just kind of take that factor out of the equation by bringing things just more than a couple really steps along the process before ever 
reaches an editor's inbox. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that if an agent signs you, that means you're done. Then it realizes that, okay, now you're ready for about 4,000 more edits before you're even close to done. Yeah. I mean, it's, I can totally see why somebody who thinks that would find the process frustrating if they weren't anticipating it, but it's just important to keep in mind that you're doing that for a reason. And if it starts to seem like it's maybe going on a little bit too long, then there's a conversation to be had there with an agent and people should always be open with their agents about how they're feeling. Like if they really feel like this is micromanaging, then that's something to talk about. But a certain degree of editorial, I think, is important for almost every project. Just depends on how much. And the other thing that we do as editorial agents, and I think probably non-editorial agents would do this too, is just have larger conversations about strategy and maybe even just discussing projects that are kernels in the writer's mind and figuring out which ones are most worth them putting energy into at any given time, just based on how the market is doing. And for career building purposes too, if you're like doing really a lot of good work in the picture book space, you know, does it make sense to suddenly switch genres or is it better to kind of consolidate your gains in the picture book space before jumping to something new? That sort of conversation. Yeah, which you probably do need an agent to help me figure that part out. Because writers are just like, we're like, let's try yeah. this. <laughs> I definitely have clients who say, I have a ton of ideas. One of the things I need an agent for is to help me focus. Mm-hmm. And I love it when clients have such a clear idea of what they most stand to gain from my representation that is helpful. Right. So there might not be a blanket rule really on this, but when someone sends you a query or pitch, and even when you're looking at pages, you know from the outset, there's going to be a lot of editing, regardless of their talent, just because that's the process, there's going to be a lot of editing. But are you looking at things where it's like, man, this is going to need way too much editing, even though it seems like sort of an idea, sort of a good idea with some potential, like how, like, I kind of know where I'm going with this question, but I don't really know how to phrase it. Of, are um, you asking like, what happens if I just think something is maybe not worth the time right now yeah is that i guess yeah essentially maybe yeah. that's putting it in a more bald-faced way than yeah. than you would have yeah i think that if i'm looking at something and i see that it has an interesting idea but needs a ton of work my first step would always be just to say that right, and then okay. it really is, is up to the client whether they feel like they want to give it a try okay. and some projects they're kind of like okay well that one wasn't really that important to me but there might be another project that you just can't let go of and you have to honor that if there's something that just keeps nagging at you sometimes you just need to create it and see what happens and then if it doesn't sell then at least you've gotten it out of your system and it's probably done something important for you yeah that's true because it's still part of the uh, training process, I guess, or the, uh, totally. the craft process. Have you seen this happen frequently, either with yourself or with other agents? I've spoken to a few writers that the book that they signed with their agent was not necessarily their first book. Oh, yeah, that happens. It's, Absolutely. So it's frequent enough that like, oh, yeah, we all know about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. And I I mean, I I don't think it it would be even that unexpected because when I'm signing a client, I'm not always signing on the basis of a project. In fact, I would tend to say that I'm I'm signing someone based on kind of a body of work and a a career, really. So, of course, what catches my attention is going to be whatever project you queried me on. But whether that's the one that we're able to sell, you know, is kind of, I mean, one hopes that that would be the case. But not always. It's it's hard to predict the marketplace. Yeah, notoriously. 
Yeah, that's so true. So would you say it's very, very important that when the writer gets to the point that they're having a call with the agent, they better have an answer when the agent says, what else are you, you know, the what else are you working on? Is that going to (laughs) come and you better have the answer for that? Yeah, I think that would be wise. It's not to say that if you didn't have an answer, that means that I'm instantly going to zone out. But particularly, I think if you're, particularly if you're a picture book writer, really like you need to be writing a lot in order to really sell enough to even make any kind of money, both on the agent side and on the creator's side, even more importantly. So if there's just one picture book and, and, and then you don't have any other ideas, it doesn't really make a lot of sense from the agent's point of view. That sounds rather crass, I realize, but that is the sort of kind of financial thinking that has to go into it because we are trying to run a business. Yeah. Agenting is all commission-based, basically. Right. Some of the larger agencies, I guess, are salaried or have some kind of modified salary type structure, but most are commission based. Yep. Right. Well, does that help if they're the agents of like an estate at that point? Because the estate is kind of just generating its own. If you've got any of these big name authors that you're part of their estate, I'm like, you're not selling anything new from them. You're just making sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what's called. It's a residuals business. So that is really helpful. You know, I'm still getting royalties from the first book that I sold. So which is amazing because many books go out of print, but this one's still in print and still doing well. So that is a nice thing about this job. But by no means does that mean that it's easy to make a living wage for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because also, like you said, the market, you never, just because you think the book is so fantastic doesn't mean the market's going to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, 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 right. But the other thing I want to say about that important conversation where you're still like feeling each other out, but maybe it's going to work out with an agent, a prospective agent and prospective client. Definitely for picture books, you should have, I would say like have three other ones that you would feel good about sharing with the agents that probably by the time you're having a conversation with the agent, they'll have already asked for that anyway, though. So maybe not as important to have like more stuff to talk about with novelists. I feel like I give novelists a little more leeway on that because Mm -hmm. writing a whole complete novel, that's just like such a huge piece of yourself. I would understand if you don't have a fully formed idea yet for the next thing. Great if you do. But if I loved your novel enough to be having a call with you, then I think that you don't need to worry as much as a picture book author. Well, if someone's planning on a series, they still should have, okay, that's going to be the editors and the agents. They're going to decide on the series. But if you're just, I see this only as a three book trilogy or whatever it is, that's not necessarily considered having another book lined up, I guess. So you still have to have a project outside of that or it's like, we're gone for the series. No, I mean, sure. Like if you have ideas for future books in the series, you can certainly talk about them, but it's not as meaningful as something totally different and new to an agent because whether or not you're going to be able to sell the future books in the series is always sort of a big question mark. But what you should have, if you have something that definitively needs to be a series and you should certainly ask yourself hard questions, whether that's actually true. But if you know, you have that first one that stands alone and then you have these amazing ideas for how to complete the series arc You should definitely have a little paragraph for each one so that if you and your agent decide that you're going to go out with it and try to pitch it as a series, you have something to show editors. And just because I know that there's self-publishing is becoming bigger. If a writer is a self-published writer and then they're querying you on a new project, them being self-published, does that necessarily change your perception of them of like, oh, they have some experience or why are they self-published? Or is it just like everyone just starts off, you kind of look at everyone in the same kind of... It's fine. Like the only thing... I wouldn't probably be able to do 
very easily is to resell the book that's already for sale without you having to just take it down from the marketplace. So yeah, I think it's fine to be self-published. I think that it's a great thing about the modern world that it's more possible for more voices to be heard and the bar for entry is a little bit lower financially than it used to be to self-publish. Yep. That's great. Discoverability can be a little bit of a challenge, yep. but it doesn't bother me when I see that a, an author has been self-published. Cool. Yay for authors. I have a totally random question that, I mean, it has to do with books, but it has nothing to do necessarily with agenting. So if I could just throw it out there. Uh, yep. When you're signing, you know, you get to the point, you sign your client, you're getting to the point, you spoke it to the editor, you're signing now for publication. Is there a standard number of what the first print is going to be like however many thousand that first print is going to be or is that depending on other factors or like how, how does that part actually work is that your decision their decision like well, I guess it's the editor's decision but well it's definitely their decision yeah <laughs> definitely yeah. their decision it's uh print runs are notoriously something that publishers keep within the cone of silence of okay. publisher land <laughs> okay so it's not something that even i am I don't even have a great like back of the envelope sense for what a typical print run would be. What I do know is that when they're putting together an offer, the way that they figure out what they can offer is by running the numbers at different print run counts. So, you know, maybe they run, you know, this is what it would look like if we printed 5,000. This is what it would look like if we printed 8,000. This is what it would look like for 10,000, you know, going up and up depending on what sort of project it is. But, you know, often they'll announce crazy print runs, you know, announcing first print of 50,000, which would be, you know, one that I've seen before. But what they really print is often difficult to know. Agents can ask after the fact, but usually it's not a number that's readily given up. Oh, it's it's not anywhere in the contract or anything like that with the number, with the print number no. is going to be? Oh. No. Oh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that it's, it's not known. Like we can ask certainly and they will tell us, but it's not something that is like part of the early conversations about the book when they're making an offer. They're basically signing the right to publish the book, which means they take over the whole publication process, basically. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. the agent and the author and the contract say this, you know, that the publisher has the right to make the decisions that they feel will best serve their business and best serve the book and best serve sales. So, you know, we can certainly contribute our opinions and agents try to do so effectively. But ultimately, contractually, it's the publisher's decision. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Since I learned how to read the publisher page, and then you, know, you see the numbers there, and then sometimes it's like, wow, this one's on a slight, you know, 15th print, but then you're like, but it doesn't even tell you how many books sold. <laughs> Just tells you right. it's on a 15th print. Yeah, but, yeah, it's not a super meaningful number. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, I guess it means that they still kept publishing it, but you can kind of look at what year it first came out and to see that they kept it in print. If the one that you have is much, like off the copyright is renewed or something, that can also tell you that. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I'm glad I got that out of my system then. <laughs> yeah. Glad you did too. Yay. <laughs> okay. Very good. So we always wrap up with the fill in the blank of, I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, agents, I guess fellow agents or whomever do X or stories do X. And I really don't like it when they do X. So how would you fill in the blank for those two? So, I mean, I think that it makes most sense for an agent probably to to talk about writers. So I think that what I really notice and appreciate from writers that I'm working with at the pre-representation stage, meaning like 
during the query process and during that sort of like little courtship dance that might be happening before any serious declarations yeah. occur. I really like it. Like if I offer maybe like a revise and resubmit opportunity or, you know, such as some gentle editorial notes, I really like it when they don't try to get back to me within like two days. If I give notes on, say, a novel, often I'll, I'll have writers in about three months still come back to me and say, I'm so sorry that it took me this long to incorporate these revisions. But I always respond, I'm thrilled it took you this long, because that means that you're really digging in and thinking about it and not revising in a knee-jerk or superficial way. I want writers to take my comments and not just like tick them off a checklist without really considering whether it suits their vision or anything else. I really like to see that people are just sort of taking their time to do it right. So it definitely kind of rubs me the wrong way when I just get something back in my inbox the next day. And not just because, you know, I don't have time to deal with it then. It's, yeah. it's really just a question of, did you really have time to rethink this to the degree that was necessary? And then the, what was the second question? The, like the opposite, what what's something that you don't like when either of the nouns that we chose do? Well, I kind of just gave you both. Yes, yes. that's <laughs> that true. That answer, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, just for more specifics, like one plot thing that I am just so tired of for mm -hmm. picture books, and I please forgive me, all those listeners out there for whom this is their plot. I feel badly if that's the case, but I don't like barnyard settings generally. I see a lot of them, and I really don't like the plot line where a rural animal or character decides that they want to go to New York City and make it big on Broadway or in ballet or like whatever <laughs> sphere of New York City glamour there might be. It seems really weirdly specific, but yeah. I see that plot a lot. Oh, really? Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I don't know. Something in the water sometimes, I guess. And then for novels, one thing I've noticed that this may be like just a misapprehension from craft workshops, yeah. um, but I see a lot of people who, particularly who are writing, well, really any age fiction, they kind of like force a hooky first line or first few pages to kind of grab readers' attention. But for me, if it's not related to the story, it really bothers me. If it's just sort of a hook for the sake of having an entertaining attention-grabbing hook, it doesn't feel organic to me. For instance, bang, you might start with a bang, yeah. and then it turns out just like a balloon popped at a birthday party, and then the story goes in some totally other direction. That bugs me. That's sort of, I was just thinking recently, I don't know which book I was reading, but I started, it was like one of these books that, you know, it's probably also just like 50 millionth print run. And the opening sentence was a very plain opening sentence. It was just regular. It was okay to start like that. Yes, you are so right about that. And I often think that when I'm, I mean, there are certainly examples of first sentences, which are just transcendent. Yeah. I'm not good at memorizing, so I can't recite any right now. But <laughs> yeah, like they don't have to be that way. They can be unobtrusive. Sometimes unobtrusive is great. Yes, very, very good. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring literary agent Jennifer Madsen. To find out more about Jennifer, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Find us on YouTube, like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Check us out at el 10 Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.